There were some major shifts this week in the role the United States plays in the world. The Trump administration showed a new openness to talks with North Korea, but new, tighter restrictions on global trade. This is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. I'm Kimberly Adams, in for Lizzie O'Leary. If you've been paying attention to the news at all this week, it's been a doozy. President Trump's chief economic advisor, Gary Cohn, announced he was resigning. And then on Thursday, there were those new tariffs on steel and aluminum. We want to build our ships. We want to build our planes. We want to build our military equipment with steel, with aluminum from our country. And now we're finally taking action to correct this long overdue problem. The tariffs are a major concern for U.S. trade partners, but President Trump says these measures will be good for the country. I think in the end, we're going to have a lot of great jobs. We're going to have a lot of great companies all coming back into our country. A term you'll hear a lot around this move is protectionism, the kind of trade policy that protects domestic interests over promoting international trade. To discuss the tariffs and what protectionism might mean for the U.S., we have Julie Neiman. She's with the financial analysis and advice firm Smithmore in St. Louis, Missouri. I asked her about the history of protectionist measures in the U.S., Well, for the most part, it has been with large industries where you have uh, large unions at stake uh, and a lot of votes. Protectionism is almost always pushed by voter pressure. And uh, that's how it basically comes about. There was only one time that it actually was necessary because we did not have a manufacturing industry. And World War II effectively made us into a manufacturing powerhouse. Uh, But in virtually every other period of time when we put protectionism on, Initially, it was to protect an infant industry and try and nurture that. The way that we're looking at the global economic powerhouse now, everybody is manufacturing what is cost-effective for them, and they're giving up manufacturing of things that are no longer are cost-effective. Much of what we do now is all value-added, is all intellectual. So what we're farming out and what we're buying from other people is where their cost of labor is lower and where they have a competitive advantage to bring things over to export to us. This benefits the entire globe. So protectionism basically kills global growth. But that argument works so long as everybody in the rest of the world is on good terms with us and wants to continue trading with us. Well, trade talks are very important and that you have to have tough level playing fields. And that's a constant thing because everybody wants to beggar your neighbor. Uh, but right now, what it does basically do is make all of your trading partners highly anxious. And the biggest thing we're looking at now, this is very clearly directed at our friends and not at our enemies. Uh, take a look at Russia, for example. They're major exporters of aluminum to us. Trump could have put a tariff on specifically Russian aluminum, but instead it goes to absolutely everybody. The same way with getting steel from China. China doesn't actually export much steel to us. They export a large amount of steel both to Canada and to Korea, two of our major trading partners, and they do export to us. So in the process, what we're doing is hurting our trading partners, hurting our friends here. And all of them have said right across the board they will retaliate in kind and very quickly if this continues on in this direction. We have the potential to have a trade war here, which would do nobody any good. The probability at this point, though, is there's probably a lot of talk uh, as opposed to actual action, but it does cause damage and lack of trust in the process here. 
But Julie, President Trump is moving ahead on this. He signed this Section 232 tariffs uh, on steel and aluminum. Why do you think that this still may not manifest in, in a more protectionist trade policy? Well, President Bush actually did this on the steel industry as well and then reversed it very shortly afterwards simply from a tremendous amount of pressure and new information coming in. So I would expect to see something like that happen as more pressure came on and was reversed. You would use some negotiation, uh, some tit-for-tat came out of it. Uh, in other words, there would be something that would uh, provide a little face cover uh, for why you're reversing your course on it. But I would expect it to be reversed in pretty short order. What might a more protectionist U.S. trade policy look like in our globalized economy? If we were to actually implement uh, these protective tariffs, we would see more categories as well. It will, where it starts with aluminum and steel, you're probably going to see expand to other things. You know, it could be in electronics. Uh, it could be in certain uh, key elements that we ex- uh, import in. You could basically put it almost any manufactured good. So the process here can absolutely hit the silly season because every single move will be met with retaliation and it will be blow by blow. That's something we won't get into. How might that affect the overall landscape of global trade, not just what affects us? If we actually get into a global trade war, which truthfully is highly unlikely at this point in time, cooler heads will prevail. Uh, So they're going to see a lot of argument first, and then cooler heads will prevail. But the ultimate outcome is if you had global protectionism and global trade war, you would see a huge reversion to a nationalistic temperament that happens to be out there where everybody closes the doors, pull back in, uh, attempt to resurrect industries that don't currently exist or at the risk of tapering off. You will see a lot of money misspent and misallocated to industries they shouldn't be trying to resurrect. It keeps inflation significantly lower for the rest of the world when you have free trade. Who are the winners and losers of a more protectionist America? In the very short run, the laborers who see industry picking up in the protected industries are the winners, but that's a very short duration. The immediate losers are usually the consumers, simply because the cost of everything goes up and it creates inflation around the world. So costs really go up. Efficiency goes down. So ultimately, it's the consumer who suffers. Julie Neiman is an analyst at Smith Moore in St. Louis. Thank you so much. You bet. Some countries embrace protectionism to preserve certain domestic industries or to limit the influence of foreign companies. For a look at how protectionist policies play out in China, I'm joined by Marketplace's China correspondent, Jennifer Pack. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Kimberly. So how open is China's market? Well, if you take a walk around the streets here in Shanghai, you'll see major U.S. brands, KFC, McDonald's, Starbucks. So you get the impression that it's very open. But China does have some tariffs on U.S. products. For example, there has been a ban on American poultry, egg imports because of concerns over avian influenza. It also has import quotas. For example, less than 40 foreign films can be shown in theaters in China per year. Most of the movies uh, come from Hollywood, but that also means that there's a lot of piracy. So the film Black Panther, for example, came out in China's theaters over the weekend. But guess what? 
Yes, we've already found a pirated copy. So it's not so easy to get pirated copies because of a government crackdown. But certainly, it's not that hard either. Okay, so are those the only types of restrictions that foreign companies face in China? No, a lot of barriers actually come from government regulations, whether explicit or implicit. So let's stick to the film industry for a second. Now, on top of the import quota for foreign films, studios, Hollywood studios, only get twenty-five percent of the box office revenues, which is low compared to other countries. And then there are areas that the film studios have absolutely no say in. For example, when do their movies get played? There are unofficial blackout periods, basically when people have time to go to the theaters in China. Only domestic films are played, and so these are the types of official and unofficial rules that happens in almost every industry, but especially in strategic ones. For example, financial services, telecom, car manufacturing, agriculture. In these industries, American companies are forced to operate in joint ventures, and this is the reason why President Trump says China is not playing fair when it comes to trade because Chinese companies can, for the most part, operate relatively freely in the U.S. The same can. Not be said of American companies in China. So that's a different kind of protectionism, but it sounds like it's really tough to do business in China. Isn't the Chinese government worried that this is going to keep companies away? The short answer is no, because the market here is just too big to ignore. Look at Google. Ten years ago, I could access the search engine, although it was a bit slow in China, and then Google exited. Left in 2010 over censorship and cyber attack issues, everything in Google is now blocked in China. So, Jennifer, is China making any moves to change this dynamic? They have said that they want to open up to foreign players. They have, for example, lifted、uh, foreign ownership limits on a very lucrative area, financial services. But what American companies have said is that these reforms are too little, too late, and that. Sometimes, by the time they've lifted these restrictions, the market is already saturated by local competitors, and that's why there's a current U.S. investigation on、uh, whether the Chinese government is forcing American companies to transfer their technology to their local partners.、Um, for example, if you look at tech giants Alibaba and Tencent, they can own their own data center and cloud computing storage in Silicon Valley, but Apple, they had to partner with a government-owned cloud storage provider here. So that's why uh, Trump's uh, administration has said. That this relationship between U.S. and China is not fair. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Disney is living its best life right now, with the superhero juggernaut Black Panther still raking in the dollars at the box office, and A Wrinkle in Time opening to the masses this weekend. So it seems appropriate to bring you this week's news by the numbers, the Wrinkle in Time edition, with Marketplace's Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Kimberly. Our first number is a hundred million. That's at least how many dollars Disney spent making its latest release, A Wrinkle in Time. It's the first nine-figure movie to be directed by a woman of color, Ava DuVernay. Heading into the weekend, it was projected to make about thirty-five million at the box office. Eight. That's how many years it's been since singer-songwriter Sade released new music. Until now, Sade released a new single for Wrinkle in Time called "Flowers of the Universe." She sold more than 50 million records in her career, and during a 2012 tour, became the year's sixth highest-earning musician in the world. 
That's how many dollars you'll shell out if you want a Wrinkle in Time Barbie signature doll. The Mrs. Witch, Mrs. What's-It, and Mrs. Who dolls are modeled on Oprah, Reese Witherspoon, and Mindy Kaling, respectively. If you want all three as a discounted set, you'll have to wait. They're back-ordered until April. Unless you're pals with Oprah, in which case... You get a doll! You get a doll! You get a doll! Wait, 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 I want to try one. I love dolls. I love dolls. They come to see the fire burning in your heart. Following the recent mass shooting at a Florida high school, Dick's Sporting Goods said it would stop selling assault-style rifles and no longer sell guns of any type to people under age 21. The day of the announcement, the retailer saw a more than 32,000% increase in mentions, retweets, comments, and likes on social media compared to the day before. People really take notice of a company's stance on issues, including some of you, our listeners. I try not to buy things at companies that sell guns. That's Catherine Wallstrom in Sarasota, Florida. She says she won't shop where she doesn't agree with the company's stance. I try to, you know, buy things at locally owned companies. I try to buy things at female owned companies or minority owned companies. So I've never shopped at Walmart because I don't think I value anything Walmart values. If the company um, puts out something like they were going to support gun control, then I would shop more likely at their stores because I would like to support that movement. And that was Susan Wendelbow in Chatham, New York. But companies aren't just taking a stance on social or political issues. A whole industry has sprung up around private businesses trying to solve public problems, issues like traffic congestion, homelessness, malaria, and water access. It's been dubbed the solution economy. Bill Eggers is executive director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights and co-authored a book on the topic. Welcome. It's great to be with you today. Thanks. So what is the solutions economy and where did this idea even come from? <laughs> well, the solution economy is basically this burgeoning new economy where you've got business, government, philanthropy, social enterprise, foundations all converging to solve big public problems. Um, in every city in America, you have social startups that are particularly focused on things like the environment or energy, education, homelessness. And then also you have for-profit companies founded in a way that they wanted to solve societal problems. So that's really interesting because there's this whole school of thought that a company's primary responsibility, especially if you're talking about a corporation, is to make money. And that money goes to shareholders. And those shareholders can change the world in the way that they want to with that money. Why are companies stepping into social positions or political positions at all? You know, there's a variety of drivers of this, and number one is simply the bottom line. These companies understand more and more that both the people that work for them and consumers, they want to invest in companies and work for companies that, that have a purpose, that are doing good in the world. And so it's very, very important for brand. Companies are realizing that they can both make money, but also dive into solving these problems, and it can actually help them. So some people might hear this conversation and say, there it is. This is the example of why the government doesn't really need to step in to solve social issues because companies will do it because it's good for business. 
What does the solutions economy see as the role of government in all of this? Government has a very powerful role to play in the solution economy. But it's a different role than they have today. Instead of sole problem solver, government's role is to create an environment where problem solvers can flourish. What about as a regulator? Because you have things like climate change, unemployment, lack of water access, malaria, huge public problems. And if a possible solution is coming from the private sector, who's making sure that these things are actually safe or legitimate? And that's a great question. And what governments are doing in that regard is, I think, really brilliant. They're creating what are called sandboxes or accelerators. And they're bringing in these social entrepreneurs and they're bringing in startups who are working on solutions to work with them while they're looking at the regulations so they can understand these technologies in a, in a deeper way and that they can create something that will encourage innovation at the same time while protecting citizens. So we've talked about things from the business perspective and the government perspective, but on the consumer side of this, lots of people are now making buying decisions based on what they perceive as the company's values. And as more of these businesses get behind different causes, how do we know it's not just all a PR ploy? Well, I, I think what's what's really interesting is how sophisticated a lot of consumers have actually become. And they're looking for much more beyond just a marketing sort of a one-time thing. They're really looking at these companies and what they're really doing around trying to solve problems and be a good corporate citizen. You know, increasingly, you have companies now who are applying to be what's called a C-Corp, where Unilever, one of the biggest consumer goods companies in the world, is now an application to do that, which says that they're not only about the bottom line, that they also have a social purpose. But doesn't that also open companies up to even more criticism as people dig into their social responsibility? You gave the example of Unilever, which had Dove's campaign for real beauty here in the United States, but in many parts of the developing world runs ads for skin bleaching creams that are really harmful to people's health and self-image. Consumers have different uh, they certainly have different values in what they bring to the table. But more and more, there's a lot of transparency. You know, a good example is in malaria eradication. Government has played a big role. Foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you've had social enterprises. But you've also actually had a number of companies putting in, in you know, total hundreds of millions of dollars into this from Coca-Cola to Shell, from Bayer to Chevron playing this role in this fight against this scourge that we've not been able to eliminate for centuries. But then how do you scale, you know, an initiative from, say, a startup to something that actually makes a difference in the world? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great question. And that's what actually a lot of these accelerators and other initiatives are designed to do. Some of these institutions have been around just a year or two and already scaled up to over 25 million customers. At the end of the day, a company still has to make money, and some of these solutions do cost money. Is there a risk that certain groups or certain segments of society are going to be priced out of the solutions that they actually might need the most? Well, in fact, if you look at some of the most successful of these sort of social enterprises, what they're doing is actually the opposite. An example uh, of that is in India, where you have an organization is able to provide cataract surgery for $25 per person through a radically new sort of business model compared to 
1,200 a person or so in the U.S., you have a lot of these sort of business models which are actually aimed at creating radically low-cost solutions so that they can bring essentially billions more people into the marketplace who right now have no opportunity to participate in that marketplace. Bill Eggers is executive director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Here's another fight businesses and individuals are taking on, the fight to scrap plastic. Cities and countries are banning or charging fees for single-use plastic items like bags and straws. This week, the wealthy beach community of Malibu, California, voted to ban restaurants from giving out plastic straws, utensils, and stirrers. Overseas, Scotland wants to ban plastic straws by 2019. Taiwan is banning single-use plastics by 2030. So is it possible to entirely get rid of these throwaway plastic items? Eric Goldstein, senior attorney and New York City environment director at the National Resources Defense Council, joins us to discuss. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kimberly. So how much single-use plastic do we use in the United States? Well, we use huge volumes and the amount is growing. When I was a kid growing up in New York City, We used to have paper bags at supermarkets, and most of our products were durable. Now, everything from pens, razors, lighters, utensils, shopping bags, coffee cups, water bottles, we've become a disposable society, and we get some short-term benefits from that, but the long-term impacts to the environment are significant. Why is there so much focus on eliminating this particular kind of plastic, single-use plastic, as opposed to plastics in general? Clearly, we're not going to get rid of all plastics anytime soon, but there's a lot that can be done. And a smart place to start is with single-use plastics like shopping bags and coffee cups and water bottles and single-use packaging. These are products that provide momentary conveniences, but they come at a steep cost to the environment. And are these kinds of bans, like the one in Malibu, are they effective? They are effective both in reducing the amount of plastic waste that is generated. In some cases, uh, communities that have prohibited plastic shopping bags or uh, styrofoam polystyrene coffee cups uh, have seen the amount of those wastes decline by two-thirds or three-quarters or more. But this is mostly happening in cities, and in particular, coastal cities. So do these kinds of individual bans in these communities actually have a meaningful impact on reducing plastics overall? Well, this is just the beginnings of an effort to reverse 50 years of throwaway society living. And so the first steps are being taken now, and the trends are spreading both throughout the nation and indeed throughout the world, countries from Ireland to Israel have been reducing single-use plastics. The EU has taken steps to make manufacturers responsible for the amount of wastes they generate and for disposing of it. And so the trend to more sustainable waste handling is just in its early phases. So what would it cost to actually phase out single-use plastics and, and what would replace it? In many instances, there are less environmentally Uh, problematic materials, whether they are compostable materials made from agricultural wastes or recycled materials 
or whether they are more durable products that can last longer periods of time. The, the price signals in the system are distorted. The costs of water and air pollution in the manufacture of plastic products aren't considered as a, a factor because they're discharged into the commons. And the marketplace hasn't factored in the true cost of plastic waste into the selling price of the products. So once those external economic factors are factored in, we'd have a much more equitable way of making choices. There should be choices available, of course, to all, but we need to do a better job of getting the economics right. Eric Goldstein is the New York City Environment Director for the National Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kimberly. This weekend might feel a little shorter than most. We're springing forward for daylight saving time. That's saving, singular, not savings. But why bother with the time change at all? Michael Downing is the author of Spring Forward, the Annual Madness of Daylight Saving Time. Here are five things you need to know, starting from the beginning. A Brit early in the 20th century was riding his horse through London. His name was William Willett. And he looked up and saw in summertime, when we have very early sunrises, people were sleeping through those precious hours of daylight. And Willett considered this a terrible waste of a natural resource. So he proposed the idea of pushing the clocks forward so that instead of wasting that hour while we were asleep, people would use that hour later in the evening to go outdoors and become healthier human beings. And to some extent, that really did work. For about 10 years from 1907 onward, the Parliament both debated and derided William Willett's proposal for daylight saving. But here's what happened. By 1916, World War I was underway. The Germans had heard about the British plan. And to the surprise of everyone, they simply adopted it in the hope of saving energy for the war effort. The British were so embarrassed that they'd been debating it for 10 years that they immediately adopted it. And the next year, the Americans adopted daylight saving for the first time, and that went into effect in 1918. In fact, this year and this month mark the 100th anniversary of the very first American national daylight saving law. But things didn't go quite as expected with the change, which brings us to the second thing you need to know about daylight saving time. It has been a total disaster as a savings plan, we've never saved a drop of energy with it, but it has been a remarkably effective retail spending plan. The idea that we would save energy was a hopeful one, and it turns out that when we use daylight saving, the best studies show us that Americans actually consume more domestic electricity, probably because of the propensity to use air conditioning during those late summer sunset times, and also because daylight saving encourages driving because people really do leave their houses when they're given more sunlight at the end of the day. But when we go to the park or the mall, we don't walk, we drive. And so as an energy plan, it's been a bust. But just because something isn't working well doesn't mean it can't survive. And that takes us to number three. As the Chamber of Commerce has known since 1915, when they first started to push for a national daylight saving law, if you give Americans sunlight after work, they tend to stop and shop on their way home. And this benefit has been peculiarly effective for segments of the retail industry. 
that involve outdoor sports and recreation and home repair, landscape and gardening, anything that has to do with getting people out of the house. Somewhere along the road, though, things got confusing. Maybe you've heard a story about farmers. That's the fourth thing you need to know about daylight saving time. Most Americans grow up with the myth that we do it for the farmers. But it turns out, from the beginning, the farmers hated daylight saving. In fact, they hated it so much that their powerful lobby was the reason we never had a peacetime national daylight saving law until 1966. But here's the deal. When America was being sold daylight saving, largely by the Chamber of Commerce on behalf of the big department stores early in the 20th century, those members of the chamber put together pamphlets essentially asserting how good it would be for farmers if we had daylight saving with such promises as crisper and more delicious apples because they would be picked before the sun had the chance to dry the dew off them. That's how the farmers got mixed up with daylight saving, and that confusion has never been undone. It just got worse. They said it would be better for horses, that there would be less strain on them early in the morning. I mean, the list went on. Farmers weren't buying a word of it. But it seems like the rest of us were. Crazy, right? So what's the last thing you need to know about daylight saving time? Every 20 years, Congress has been pressed into giving us an extra month of daylight saving. So we're now up to eight months of daylight saving. And presently, there are several proposals, one in Florida that has actually passed the legislature and is waiting for the governor's signature, hoping to push the state onto full year daylight saving. It turns out once you start fiddling with the clocks, it's hard to stop. I think history tells us we're not going to be able to stop. And even these plans to go on daylight saving year-round, which of course is simply moving your time zone, one zone to the east, that might not even solve the problem. Several times in history, there have been experiments with year-round daylight saving time. And come March or April, those places which are already on daylight saving time, the residents well, their fingers start to get itchy and they want to spring forward again. So my sense is that this is never going to end. So there you have it, the five things you need to know about daylight saving time. From Michael Downing, author of Spring Forward, The Annual Madness of Daylight Saving Time. As part of our occasional series, How to Be a Blank, we take you to Barcelona, Spain, for a peek at the life of a tour guide. That story and more coming up on Marketplace Weekend. Every so often at Marketplace, we conduct a poll with Edison Research for a snapshot of how people feel about the U.S. economy. You can find the latest results at Marketplace.org. One question this round, have you personally ever experienced sexual harassment in the workplace? 27% of women said yes, and so did 14% of men. Men like Paul Burns from San Antonio, Texas. And a warning, this story contains descriptions of sexual assault. 
it started with something like really basic. You know, can you just stop by my house and, and bring me this? I didn't think anything of it because it was like, can you just bring me uh, this box of paperwork? <laughs> then it was, why don't you just hang out for a bit? Then uh, it was, I'm really tense in my shoulders. Can you give me a massage? So, I mean, I did it. I just figured, well, she's probably just having a really off day. Uh, the next thing after that was dry cleaning. Pick up the dry cleaning and bring it to my house. It got physical. Uh, there was intimate contact. She was just the manager. So, I mean, I didn't want to lose my job, so I complied. You know, for a guy who's 18 going on 19 that's moved out and can now afford his own apartment, I was also looking at it as if I lose my job, I'm losing my freedom. Dry cleaning meant that I would be going over that evening. I would be spending the night, leaving early, going home to shower and change, and then going back to work. And she knew that I had to do it. She was management. For someone like me, who was in an entry-level position, you know, they're the ones that can make or break my career. You know, she was the person that basically signed my check. So if I don't make her happy, I, maybe I don't get paid that week and maybe I get fired. Basically, it, it came down to the statement that she made was something along the nature of, I'm a, I'm a successful, attractive woman. Who's really going to believe you? I tried telling HR reps, and when I tried to explain it, it was almost like he was thinking that I was talking about a fantasy that I wanted to have and that it was wishful thinking. The only response, it was like a, you should be so lucky. I mean, she wasn't my girlfriend or a person that I was in a relationship with or, you know, that I had entertained the idea of being with this woman or anything like that. I mean, she was just my boss. And she had pointed out to me she had been sexually harassed and you should be so lucky because, you know, when she was sexually harassed, it was an extremely unattractive person. And since she's not, I mean, I should just be dealing with it. I tried telling my girlfriend at the time I'm being forced to do this. She did not take me seriously, and that relationship ended. I went to management so many times about it, and it just kind of got uh, rebuffed away. I ended up quitting. In my exit interview, I completely told them why. Because when, when someone can just snap their fingers and make someone do whatever they want, I think at some point they get bored and they just want to keep pushing that envelope further and further to see what they can get away with, and I wasn't going to do that. Then I, I ended up getting a different job. One of the uh, floor leads made a comment about um, how many headboards could I break, meaning um, that stereotypically Irish people have a lot of stamina and other comments that were sexualizing me in a way that I didn't want. I went to HR and I think it had to do with my previous experience because I didn't want to I didn't want to relive something like that again. And this time at a different company, some, you know, five years later, I mean, the issue was resolved. I think that there's a lot of social stigmas. I think, one, if you're a man and you say that a woman is sexually harassing me, people are going to think that you're either joking, gay, or a moron. Other men have to come forward and say, this happened to me and this bothered me. Because if we don't do that, this social stigma of us is just going to continue on. That was Paul Burns from San Antonio, Texas. The vast majority of workplace sexual harassment cases are brought by women. But almost one in five, 17 percent, of all workplace sexual harassment cases filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 2015 came from men. 
If that number surprises you, it may have to do with the silence and stigma surrounding men and sexual harassment. Todd Harrison is a partner with a California law firm that handles thousands of employment law cases per year. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, as we said, most cases of workplace sexual harassment do involve female victims. But what is the environment like for men if they want to report being the victim of sexual harassment? Um, the biggest problem is that men are embarrassed. Um, they have pride that gets in the way. They don't want to complain about it, especially to their male coworkers. So I think it's much more prevalent than probably the statistics would reveal whether or not they choose to pursue it once they realize the process and what goes into it, uh, that's another story. What is the difference between what someone might perceive as sexual harassment versus what is legally sexual harassment? So in California, sexual harassment can be two things. One is quid pro quo, which is um, sexual favors for advancement, let's say. Uh, The other sexual harassment has to be severe or pervasive. Severe meaning very bad, pervasive meaning happening all the time. You know, maybe a pat on the butt to most people would be sexual harassment. In California, that's not necessarily sexual harassment. Touching somebody's breast even uh, is not always considered sexual harassment because it's not severe enough or it's not happening on a consistent basis. Um, A lot of times, stray comments are not considered sexual harassment. So if somebody says, you know, you have a nice body or... um, you know, I'd love to have sex with you. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be sexual harassment. There has to be a pattern. So if a pat on the butt may not be sexual harassment, how many times does somebody have to pat you on the butt before it actually is? You know, maybe in certain jurisdictions, a pat on the butt would be severe enough. Uh, Here in California, just one single instance like that typically is not going to be. So um, if it was two times, three times, How many times? There is no magic number. It's just a pattern of behavior. Is there any data, any evidence out there that helps us understand sort of who is harassing men in the workplace? Typically, the male is in a subordinate role. A lot of times, the sexual harassment, it doesn't necessarily always mean sex. It it becomes something about domination, um, about demeaning the other person. So when you have a female in a power position... um, and a male as a subordinate, sometimes you're going to have have those problems. Several of the stories that we heard about men being victims of sexual harassment in the sort of immediate aftermath of this first wave of Me Too were about men who'd been sexually harassed by other men. But it seems like from what you're telling me, that's a lot less common than the sort of uh, female supervisor, male worker dynamic. In almost all, you're always going to see the power difference. Um, Male on male, though, uh, we represent a lot of males where their coworkers are either harassing somebody because of their sexual orientation or they're both gay and they're doing it the same way that male, female, female, male would, would happen as well. When men do come forward and they do decide to pursue these cases, are the consequences for them any different than those for women who go through this process? Well, I certainly think it goes back to um, embarrassment and and pride. Um, I mean, we've represented male clients where they've filed a lawsuit while they're still working there. And um, once the workforce becomes aware of it, they're teased and ribbed by their, their male counterparts. You know, who doesn't want a woman flirting with you? Why wouldn't you want to have sex with your boss? That kind of thing. What steps can companies take 
to make sure there's an environment where men can feel comfortable coming forward with concerns about sexual harassment? I think the most important thing is proper training. People need to know that you know, jokes, innuendos, uh, even stray comments can sometimes be harassing or discriminatory. Second, managers need to know how to handle it. They're supposed to investigate. You know, a lot of employees are under the misguided belief that human resources is their friend. Human resources is there to protect the company. It's critical that you document everything. And you want to fax, email, or certify mail that to the HR department because a lot of employers will say, you know, they never complained, therefore we had no obligation to do anything because we didn't know about it. And how can we as a society address this stigma that men feel like they will be embarrassed or ashamed if they pursue these actions? The more men that come forward, the easier it will be for for other men. Todd Harrison is the managing partner of the Employment Law Division with California law firm Perona, Langer, Beck, Serban, and Harrison. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This coming week marks 10 years since what was once the fifth largest investment bank in the U.S., Bear Stearns, teetered on the brink of collapse before being absorbed by J.P. Morgan Chase. It was an early indication of the financial crisis to come, but the crisis didn't just hit financial institutions. People's lives were affected in big and small ways. And we're hearing some of those stories as part of Marketplace's year-long series, Divide decade, like this one from Lon Chu. When the crisis hit, she was finishing up school at the University of Texas, Austin. My dad is from Vietnam, and he was in housing business. He was a floor technician for 25 years, and he told me where homes were being built, people were just like kind of stopped. Everything just kind of stopped. So for my parents, it was really, really, really super difficult for them. But I don't think I understood the whole picture until I graduated and I was looking for jobs. Um, It was the hardest time for me. I decided, okay, you know what, this this is really stressful. So I actually went to Korea to teach instead. Korea gave me some sort of stability. And a lot of people actually went. And I mean, there were like people who in their, like, 50s that were teaching among my age group. And I asked them, what are you doing here? And, of course, it was the financial crisis in America that really affected them, and they decided to go to Korea and teach instead because they were losing their jobs in America. I'm in my 30s now. When that happened, I was in my early 20s. I think I'm managing my money better now. But I still have student loans and I'm still paying it off. And the sad part of it is I I look at my statement every few quarters and I just, I'm still paying for a loan of $8,000 because the interest is at 6%. And I'm like, wow, I've been paying for this loan for the past 10 years and I haven't paid. That's one loan. I have like five different loans for student loans and my student debt accrued to about like $40,000. I've been a self-employed person for the past 10 years since I graduated, except for that one job in Korea. 2008 was horrific. It affected a lot of people. And from that point, I just, I don't rely on anyone else except for myself. And 
It's just that's the reality of it. You can see photos of Lan Chu on our Instagram, where at Marketplace APM, and tell us how the financial crisis changed you. Use the hashtag #HowWeChanged. While we look back at what happened during the financial crisis, a reminder of how we got there. Mostly questionable lending practices and subprime loans, which in turn led to millions of Americans losing their jobs and homes. And it fell on three government officials to keep the country from total meltdown. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. If you've got a squirt gun in your pocket, you may have to take it out. If you've got a bazooka and people know you've got it, you may not have to take it out. You're not likely to take it out. Timothy Geithner, who took over from Paulson as Treasury Secretary in 2009, and Ben Bernanke, who at the time was chairman of the Federal Reserve. As part of our Divided Decade series, Marketplace's Kai Rizdahl will sit down with these three men together to discuss their roles in the financial crisis. What do you want to ask them? Let us know. Leave a message on our Facebook page, look for Marketplace Business News. And on Twitter, we're at Marketplace. We're going to take a little break from the U.S. economy and head over to Barcelona, Spain, where you can find tapas, flamenco, Gaudi's crazy architecture, and maybe your dream job as a city tour guide. It's the next chapter of our occasional series about how different people do their jobs. In this case, how to be a European tour guide. My name is Jonathan Lerner, and I'm the founder of Teller Tours Barcelona, and I live in Barcelona, Spain. Basically, I became a tour guide when I realized that I was in the country that I wanted to be in, which was Spain, but I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. I was working in real estate and had enough one day and returned to what my passion was, which is art and culture and history and and people and stories. When I started guiding and kind of when I was learning the ropes, I was working with different friends and colleagues and kind of just learning as much as I can about the city as possible. And that was a great experience to learn the ropes because it really turned out to be kind of just like theater. You had 20 people just kind of staring at you. In the beginning, there was skepticism. They would look at you, you know, some levels of, of distrust or what's going what's gonna to happen on this tour. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, really like clockwork, you could see by using humor and, and history and connecting with the people, they're connecting within themselves. I think it takes, first of all, a lot of knowledge, so really understanding the pulse of the city, uh, understanding what people would love to, to see, to learn about, and to, to hear when they're in town. And then there's um, the human aspect, and that's what I love so much. Barcelona definitely is one of the most saturated tourism markets in Europe, if not the world. And so I started small and launched Taylor Tours Barcelona really just by word of mouth. And from there, it was growing and growing until a travel agent reached out. And, and little by little, you know, I was able to carve a space out in the city. We have tons of tours. A wonderful experience is kind of an introduction to the city. We call it the, the golden age of Barcelona. And we go through the Gothic Quarter, the historic center of the city. And we're going we're gonna to talk about 2,000 years of history from the Roman times up through the Gothic period and see some wonderful churches and squares and actually try to make 
a child or an adult even at the end of this time together fall in love with Gothic architecture. I know maybe that doesn't sound um, like the sexiest thing, but it's very possible. Giving tours in museums in Sagrada Familia every time I'm still humbled by the absolute beauty of the city, of the architecture, and of the cultural heritage that I'm able to, to share. So for me, at the end of those two hours or three hours or whatever it was, to see those people connecting is when really the magic happens. That was Jonathan Lerner, founder of Tailored Tours Barcelona. That piece was produced by Eliza Mills. Thanks to our listener, Jill Wagner, for the suggestion. If you have an idea for a how-to-be-a-blank story, we want to hear it. You can email your ideas to weekend at marketplace.org. And that's it for Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced this week by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. And Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Lizzie O'Leary is back next week. Thanks for listening. This is APM.